It's a cute hat. Yeah, it's adorable. Did your mom make it? Uh, yeah, this is for Grunge Girl, actually. It just has such cute, the little cable knit. I don't know if you just call the cable knit parts cables or what, but they're very cute. They look like little like plants, like seaweed or something. Yeah, yeah, they're like the little S's that you draw when you're in middle school. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Hi, how are you? Sleepy? Yeah, I'm sleepy. I'm, hold on a second. I feel like the headphones aren't touching my ears enough with this hat on. There <laughs> I can we see go. <laughs> well, now it's looking much more mushroomy. <laughs> you look much more like a gnome or smurf now. I'll tell you how I am, Hava. How are you? I saw Avatar yesterday. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And? It melted my face off. Really? Yeah. That's so weird to me. Why is it weird to you? Uh, I guess just because I saw the first Avatar and I was like, okay, I guess. That was fine. <laughs> Did you see it in 3D, though? No. Oh, okay. I saw the thing in 3D. Mm-hmm. It was, it was pretty amazing. Was it the visual spectacle? It was just a visual spectacle. Well, I love a spectacle. Yeah, it really did melt my face off. How are you, Hava? Thank God. I'm okay. I'm a little gloomy today, I have to say. It's like gray, stormy weather outside. My house is a little dirtier than I want it to be. Yeah, I'm just feeling a little gloomy, although I bet making this show with you will will put me back on the straight and narrow of happiness. I hope so. I hope I'm not going to disappoint you. Oh, why would you disappoint me? Because I tried to bring a text. Uh-huh. And I'm, I'm not bringing a text today. I'm just bringing me. <laughs> me. I'm the text. I'm the text. Look at today. me. Yeah. I'm the text now. Okay. So, do you still do you still want to be my friend? <laughs> do you still love me? Yeah. <laughs> I do. Okay. I do still want to be your friend. Okay, great. Uh, it would take a lot more than that to dislodge my friendship. You're not mad at me? No. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah. I mean, of course, I wish you had brought a text, but like, it's not, it's fine. We'll make the show, you know, it's a, it's an adventure every week. It is an adventure every week. That's true. And it's going to be fine. There's plenty of stuff to talk about in this episode. I brought some text that I'm excited to discuss. You just bring Maximal Michael as your half of the text and, and by our powers combined, we'll make a tasty little episode. Mm, I love it. Okay, great. And the listeners will love it. Everyone will love it. And then everyone will clap. Okay, let's make this podcast episode. All right, okay, okay. We're going to make a podcast episode. Here we are. We're both gloomy, rainy day babies. Yes. And suitably, we're here to uh, analyze a gloomy, rainy day episode of Russian Doll. Yes, yes, we are. So, we are here to talk about Russian Doll Season 2, Episode 5, Exquisite Corpse. Here's what happens. If you recall, last we left off, Nadia was getting off the train in Budapest in 1944. Nazi-occupied Budapest. So we open with her in the train station, getting off the train. She's got the receipt for her family's goods for the supposed gold train. And she just fucking strolls right up to a Nazi. <laughs> and she's like, what's up? Hey, can you give me directions? I don't know what... My this would not be my instinct in this situation, no, you know. No, no. I would lay much more low, uh but luckily some friend, seeming friend comes and rescues her from this interaction. It's not clear to me who this person is, but they clearly know Nadia's grandmother, 
which is who she is now. And she realizes that she's supposed to be going by a fake name, Erzibet, which I guess is like a Christian name. So she goes off with this person who rescues her from the Nazi interaction. She's like doing her usual naughty thing of like, oh, well, it's so crazy. I'm in like Budapest. She's really, if you think about it, she's really just like basically a valley girl, but like with a veneer of edge over it. She has this attitude towards everything that's like, well, like crazy. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like she's like that, but not from a place of naivete, but from a place of everything Cynicism. is dark and <laughs> fucked up. And you kind of arrive at the same location at the end of the right. day. Horseshoe theory for Barbies. So she gets rescued by this girl and she's doing her usual Nadia thing. And the girl is like, if you're cracking up, like... I'm going to abandon you. Bye. This really reminded me of Alan's arrival in Germany, where Alan goes to the meeting with all those people who are going to dig a tunnel under the Berlin Wall. And he's like, whoa, what the fuck's happening? Everyone's like, you know what? Fuck this. (laughs) Get your shit together. Yeah, yeah. It is kind of similar. I feel like, okay, this is not, I mean, I love this show and maybe I wouldn't respond this way, but I feel like if I had already gone through the experience of a seemingly infinite death loop, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I would play my cards a little closer to my chest as a time traveler, you know? I would immediately accept that time travel is real and then just play it cool. Yeah, yeah, it is kind of weird. Well, I think that's part of the funniness of it. Part of the comedy of the show is like, how serious the time travel is and the consequences of doing it. Right. But also, there's also at the same time uh, this other take on the time travel, which is it's just a game. Right. And it's interesting because in season one, when they're going through the death loop, part of the what makes the conceit work is that it seems like there's no consequences for what happens in the death loop. Whereas time travel is almost like the opposite. You know, everyone has sort of the butterfly effect attitude of like anything could change anything. So it's like every supernatural event they go through is the opposite side of the spectrum from a death loop in that it has infinite possible consequences. At least that's what we think. Right. Until the end of this episode. (laughs) Until the end of the episode where it's like, no, it was like a fucked up game about learning something yeah we'll see so she goes to her apartment her grandma's budapest 1944 apartment and lo and behold who should be there but to rescue her her grandma's bff delia the romani woman who she is friends with also in the 80s who makes herself known by making a cuckoo sound (laughs) cuckoo it's very (laughs) key very cute and is hiding behind a bathroom mirror where there's a secret room which is very candy man so they're hiding out in their secret room and she's like where's the gold train adelia's like there's no gold train it's a warehouse and so they go down to the warehouse well nadia just goes by herself oh okay for some reason i wrote down that they went together but she does go in by herself so it makes sense she went by herself to begin with. Okay, but before she goes into the warehouse, like people look at her on the street and are like, I can't tell who's a widow and who's a, a Jew. Jew. Yeah, I wrote that down too, that apparently all the Jews are dressing like widows and the, uh, I think, you know, I'm just going to call all non-Jews, all the people who are not Jews or not Romani, I'm just going to call Nazis. And all the Nazis are like basically like talking about it all the time yeah so like i don't understand what preceded this like did all the jewish families except for the women get shipped off or yeah i don't know enough about holocaust history to 
say accurately what happened, but it seems like some large amount of the families are gone and few members remain behind in Budapest itself. Yeah, and it seems like at least some amount of women are pretending to be widows right? Christian. And so she rolls up to the Nazi guarding the warehouse, who apparently is fooled by her widow disguise because he flirts with her and she's like, whatever, I'll take advantage of this flirtation in order to get into the warehouse. Yeah, she goes in the warehouse and it ends up being like a church store, basically. Yeah, it's set up like an estate sale. Yeah, yeah. Where they're selling all of the Jews' stuff, and then downstairs there are just crates and crates of stuff that is yet to be unpacked. And also there's a cuckoo clock that goes off in this scene. I don't know what the theme of cuckoos means in this episode, but it comes up it's twice. Like time. And that's enough to make it a theme. Time. Like time, man. Like Yeah, time I think it stuff. was just time stuff. Time, time, time. So everyone is taking the juice stuff. We get a couple shots where it's the actor playing her grandmother acting like Natasha Leone as Nadia. I really like the shots where it's other actors acting like Natasha Leone's very distinctive style. I just think that's like a fun conceptual thing to witness. That was kind of neat. Lots of good cut shots in this episode in general between different versions of Nadia as Nadia, Nadia as, well, you, you know what I mean. You get it. There's also a lot of really sparse classical piano as soundtrack in this episode, which is a big change from soundtracks of previous episodes like Personal Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Very beautiful. I thought the music was great. Mm-hmm. So she finds their stuff in a crate in the basement, and it's like a clearly very valuable painting, like some candlesticks, just sort of a collection of luxurious knickknacks, basically, mm-hmm. that she finds and puts into her bag. And she's clearly having like a very emotional time down there, seeing the warehouse stretching out with all the people stolen stuff around her. Yeah, I really liked this scene. I felt like she's like regathering the lost parts of her family in a way it's clear like she's go having this emotional experience with these objects which is a big part of what i fixated on in this episode is you know she's taking all these sort of broken pieces and and collecting them in her bag to take them to the future so she gets all her stuff and she puts it in the tunnel that we see at the beginning of the first episode yeah and she makes herself a little map And then she goes to the church where the priest is that she remembers from the Jewish graveyard. And then she's trying to find the right guy. And she's like, he has a case of, uh, how do you say, kugel fever? Oh, my God. (laughs) Which I thought was really fucking funny. Yeah, (sighs) yeah. I thought that was a good strategy. Very neat little strategy. Go find the priest buried in the Jewish cemetery. You can trust that priest. Right. The older priest, the non-helpful guy, keeps saying she's welcome to pray. She says, people always say welcome when they mean tolerated, which I thought was a good zinger. So she gives the map to the helpful Jew-loving priest Mm -hmm. who weirdly believes and trusts that she does know the future and he's like what's up like do i get old and she's like yeah you died when you were really old and also you were married so you know look forward to that oh i guess that kind of explains why he'd be buried in a jewish cemetery if he actually was a uh, a kugel lover <laughs> A kugel, it just sounds so much like cougar. Well, I mean, I feel like Jewish women that go after Christian men should be called kugels. (laughs) 
anyway, <laughs> glossing over that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just because he helped a bunch of Jewish families, but my imagined plot was that he left the church after he saw their complicity with the Nazi regime. But that's just like me filling in the gaps of what could have happened. And then it's like, why not <laughs> go buck wild? I think he met a Jew that he was trying to save. We make another companion film to Russian Doll called Along Came a Jew. So she gives him the map. Oh, no, she doesn't give it. She's like, OK, I'll meet you at the train station later because we can't exchange it here. Right, she goes right, to right. the train station and basically she drops the little piece of paper and the Nazis are coming and she has to run. And then someone picks up the piece of paper and is calling her name. And it's a Jewish name. And it's a Jewish name. So she's like, oh, I can't respond or they'll get me. And then she basically gets on the train. She's like, I got to go. I can't deal with this. But she does give the letter to the guy beforehand and says, like, mail this to me and after the war. Yes. And so she gets to the future and we flash forward to her as older Vera, 80s Vera, going with Delia to the appraiser's office with all these goods. And it takes her a while to understand, but eventually she realizes that she's exchanging the goods for Krugerrands. Yes. Which yes. means that she had always already done this because the only way her grandmother could have had the stuff to exchange for Krugerrands to begin with is if she had hidden the stuff in the tunnel. So it was always destiny. Yeah, so prior to this revelation, we all thought they had a bunch of stuff in Hungary, it was stolen, so then they learned their lesson and were traumatized, so then when they were in America, they slowly saved up and converted their savings to gold, which right. in their traumatized minds was somehow less, I don't know, easier to hide or something like mm -hmm. that. But in reality, it always was. They converted the goods that they recovered through time travel, and they converted that to Krugerrands. It was not like a right. new batch of money. It was always the same batch. And we sort of know this is always true because there was dialogue in a previous episode between Nadia's mom and grandma about how there was some sort of miracle or like some sort of inexplicable thing that happened surrounding the gold train. So oh. we sort of know from hints that there was always a little bit of, of something happening. And so she's like, fuck, like everything I've done is pointless. Uh, I've wasted all this time basically just fucking around thinking I could change something, but causality protected itself. But what I liked about this realization is even though there's like a fuck, this didn't work out. There's also kind of like a this is really funny that this didn't work out. And my favorite scene in the whole episode was her interacting with Nora, her child, a young Nora. She's made this realization about the gold. She comes mm -hmm. back to the apartment. She puts it under the couch. Little Nora comes in in like a ballet outfit. You know, future yeah. Nora who's going to steal the gold from under the couch. Right. And Nadia, as her grandmother's like, look, you're going to steal this gold at some point. And that's just the way it is. Yeah. And Nora's like, I don't know, but let me show you this cool 
tarantella dance that mm-hmm. i'm doing she's like dance with me mommy and like we need to dance so that the poison doesn't reach our heart yes big so uh, self-pregnancy self-parenting vibes coming back strong in this super scene. strong i just love the choice that it's this tarantella dance that they're dancing as fast as they can to avoid the spider bite that's the mm-hmm. premise of the dance yeah is that a spider bites you so you have to dance real crazy so that you sweat out the poison or right. it doesn't reach your heart. That's the historical dance they're doing together. It's very happy, sad, tragic, like mm-hmm. the situation with the timey-wiminess. Right, right. It's a very, very sweet scene. After the beautiful dance of the tarantula slash tarantella, she goes back on the subway. And when she's on the subway, it seems like someone, maybe a neo-Nazi, comes through the car and is like, you know what, let's get out of here. And she takes offense to it. She thinks it's about her. So she follows the neo-Nazi, and then the next car is in the 80s. And she's like, what the fuck is happening? And she walks forward, and the next car is in 1944. And then she walks forward again, and the next car is back in the present day. And so she sort of, her train has become a time loop unto itself. And eventually she comes back around and she comes to a train where it's the 80s, and she's her mom, and then her water breaks. And she starts giving birth to herself. So self-pregnancy again. Yeah. Huge, huge win for the self-pregnancy fans in the audience. Yeah, yeah. If if you're into it, this is the episode for you, for sure. Yeah. So it was a really good episode. What did you like about it? You like the sweetness of the dance. That was my favorite part. The sweetness of the dance, of her dancing with her baby mother. There was something about that, you know, like if you're a utopian kind of thinker and you're like, what would it take for all of us to finally live in peace? Maybe you're like, oh, we need to like have all of our neurons wired together and become like a mycelial network. Like that would really help or like, Uh right? you know, we need to be able to feel the empathy of everyone around us through some sort of technological advancement or like, you know, we all need to go to Montessori school or some crazy thing like that. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that's going to help. But like, to me, this is it. Just dance the tarantula dance. You need to dance the tarantula dance with your mother who is a child. And I feel like something about that. <laughs> if only you could do that. I feel like that's very healing. Right, right. Think about Well, it. I have news for you, Michael, which is that your mother is still a child and that you can dance a tarantula dance with her <laughs> I today. Know. It's, so. it's always available to me. Yeah, that's the magic of it. Tell me, Hava, imagine your mother as a child. Uh-huh. And you were dancing the tarantula dance. Yeah, it would probably be very healing. Don't you think that would be healing? Yeah, I would be really curious to meet my mom as a child. I actually would be really curious to meet my mom at all kinds of different phases because the sort of deal with my mom, at least from what I've learned from my family, is that she grew up in my grandparents' house, which is the Jewish side of our family, is a very, like, liberal household. Like, classic liberal, you know, like, Obama-Hillary liberal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so she grew up that way. And then she met my dad in college, and it seems like the understanding in the family is that her relationship with my dad is what turned her into the deeply conservative woman that she is today. So I would love to go on this journey and meet all the different versions of my mom and be like, you know, I feel like I can accept how things are. Like, I love myself and... My journey inexorably led me to this moment of being who I am. But I would love to know, like, what was she thinking at each turn 
in her journey? You know, what were her critical moments, her New York 1984, Budapest, you know, whatever, like what? Yeah. What were each of those and how did they lead her to become who she is today? Yeah, I think about that. If my parents would be friends with me, if we were the same age at various right. times. Uh, th- I know like, you just keep bringing it back to myself and my own mom. But one thing I learned as an adult is that my mom has a really close gay friend that she's been friends with since college. <gasps> and I just like that just lives in my head rent free, as they say, like that haunts me. It really haunts me. And I, there's like, so there's a Russian doll. There's a season of Russian doll there, you know? Wow. <sighs> yeah. I just want to know like what she was thinking. There's this really cute picture of her and her gay BFF in late high school, early college dressed up as coneheads for Halloween. Coneheads. Oh, yeah. wow. I know. Wow. Ugh. Yeah, I didn't expect this episode of Russian Doll to get to me so personally. It's weird, honestly, that I haven't thought about my own mother in any of this so far. Oh, I was thinking about my mom in this episode. Beyond just the dancing with a child version of my mom, which is still the mom that currently exists, the whole (laughs) borrowing the name thing. My mom has a whole story about how she had to acquire fake papers, Mm -hmm. fake passport documentation that said that she wasn't Jewish in order to take English classes in Minsk. Wow, that's a good story. Yeah. It's like, what? Like, this is the This is why we need a Michael's Mom episode of the show. I know, I know. We need, like, seven Michael's Moms episodes. (laughs) We need a whole season just of your mom. Yeah, maybe we should do, like, a special. Sam insists that I make a podcast called Alina Explains It All. (laughs) I would listen. Yeah. And out of ten, would subscribe. I'll, I'll throw it. Buyer. We can make it a sub-series of, uh, of Hi, How Are You? That'd be kind of fun. I think this is a perfect moment for me to inject some text, hot text injection. Okay, great. I'm a text machine. So the first thing I want to bring is from Brachot 8B, where we read, He's haru b'zakein sheishakach talmud me'achmut onso. Demrinan be careful with regards to an elder who has forgotten their learning due to circumstances beyond their control. As we say, both the tablets and the broken tablets are placed in the ark. So context is that we're getting a bunch of sayings from Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi, and he's saying basically this is his advice for life. Be careful to respect elders who have forgotten their Torah knowledge because they've gotten old. Because both the tablets, a.k.a. the tablets with the Ten Commandments on them, and the broken tablets, a.k.a. the first versions, which Moses broke, were placed in the Ark of the Covenant and carried around. Oh, wow. I know. This is a classic banger. That is, I've never heard that banger before. That yeah, is it's a good so one. good. Is that a well-known one? In queer Talmud world, I'd say so. I don't know how popular it is outside of that subculture. Yeah, wow. Yeah, obviously felt very relevant in so many ways to this episode. Like, when Nadia gathers those materials in the past, this is immediately what I thought of. is like she's gathering up basically the broken tablets of her family. Basically, like the leftover pieces of material memory that she can scavenge and carry around with her on her journey. Oh, wow. 
Oh, my brain. My brain. <laughs> and not to get like too galaxy brain about it, but as we were, you know, sort sort of uh, getting close to talking about as we were talking about our own moms, like we sort of carry around all of these fragments of our own family in ourselves, both in the form of inherited trauma and just like stories and material items. And not only do we carry them around, we also carry around past versions of our own selves, you know, which is really this, this, whoa, I can't believe I just now fucking realized this. This season is the most Russian doll Russian doll has ever been because her grandma is a matryoshka containing her mom, containing her, containing herself as an infinite Russian oh, doll. Oh, no. Fuck. No. <laughs> Uh, and we're all Russian dolls is the point that I'm saying this is how you deal with trauma people this is the solution to trauma oh great okay can't wait number one except that you're a Russian doll there's nothing right. you can do about it okay mm-hmm. number two forgive your parents for being nutso and take whatever they broke and if they're broke and put them in the Ark of the Covenant which is you, which is a Russian doll. Which is you, which is everything. Which is inside God, which is inside the universe, which is inside God. Which is just like pure fucking God force, mm-hmm. energy, forgiveness, acceptance, grace. I sound like a Catholic right now. I'm sorry. <laughs> you really do. I'm a crypto Catholic, everyone. Just wow. deal with it. What a twist. So I certainly feel like I'm carrying around, you know, all my broken pieces. And I think one of the things that's important about this teaching is sort of like it brings us this value of sort of the spiritual power of honoring things, even if they aren't useful or even if they're reminders of a bad time or, you know, Whatever the case may be that renders a tablet broken, there are a lot of qualities the broken tablet have. But the act of carrying them around in the covenant is like still sort of giving them their sacred due because of what they represented at the time before they were broken and that that sacredness is sort of never lost. This is really now I'm getting a really strong flashback to our episode on Alicia Benabuya, the Acher, the ultimate heretic who, you know, a lot of that episode we spent talking about how he still was due respect as a teacher of Torah, and his Torah teachings were still respected because they were still true, regardless of what became of him later. Yeah, now I'm wondering about the situation where it wasn't a tablet with writing on it Mm -hmm. that then broke. What if it was just a stone that never was, you know, righteous or doing good Torah? What am I trying to say? Gosh, I'm so glad you brought that up. Like a like a like a person who never uh never was good. You know great segue into our next text. So I'm gonna bring a text that's very special to me because it was the very first Talmud text I ever taught in my whole life. In my very first class at the start of the pandemic. We did a class called Tiny Vessels on this text, and here it is. So it's from Chulin 91a. So we read, Mm-hmm. 
We start with a Torah verse, and the Torah verse is Bereshit 32.25, and Jacob was left by himself. So what's happening in this narrative is Jacob is like in the period of his life where he's sort of like running from Esau. He's on the lamb with him and his whole household. In the midst of that whole, you know, Scooby-Doo running back and forth between all the doors and poking their heads out, we have this verse that Jacob was left by himself. So... Rabbi Eliezer comes to Drash on this verse, and he says, he stayed behind for some small jars. So he basically, he went back across the river for some little jars. And from this, we can deduce that for tzaddikim, for a tzaddik, for righteous people, their possessions are more precious to them than their lives. Why? Because they don't stretch out their hands to partake in thievery. Oh, yes, I'm remembering this. Yeah, yeah, classic. I think we probably did a podcast episode on it way, way back in the beginning. There's so many questions about what the hell's going on here. I know, but I couldn't help but think about how Nadia is so, like, role-playing this thing, this action of Jacob's. Like, she's, like, going back into the mouth of the beast. She's going back into Nazi-occupied Budapest. A.K.A. Esau territory. Exactly. To get her tiny vessels. Right, right. And she's risking her life to get the vessels. Yeah. So, there are many challenges in this verse, right? When we think about a righteous person, we usually think of a lot of things being more precious to them than their possessions, right? Yeah. But this one says their possessions are more precious to them than their bodies. So that's wild. And then we have this second explanation, which says it's because they don't stretch out their hands in thievery. So there's sort of two main ways people explain why their possessions are so valuable to them. One, the general explanation is because for a tzaddik, they view every object in the world, everything that comes into their possession, as if it's a gift given directly into their hand by God. Okay, okay. And so you wouldn't, you know, if God's hand came out of heaven and handed me this glasses cleaning cloth that I have in my hand right now, I would probably treat it with a lot more care than I do because I treat it just as a little piece of cloth. But if a hand came out of heaven and handed it to me, I would respond to it very differently. Which sometimes happens. The hands do literally come out of it. Right, and sometimes it takes stuff back, as we learned. That's true, that's true. That's the general explanation, or one popular explanation. The specific explanation is that people have, since at least medieval era, understood this to sort of mean that basically Jacob knew that these jars were going to be important, some Midrash say that they were jars of oil that could never be emptied, like they never ran out of oil, and they would ultimately become the oil that produced the miracle of Hanukkah and that was used for different important temple anointing things throughout history. So Jacob sort of knew through his mystical powers as a tzaddik that these jars would ultimately be sort of the vessels, so to speak, of a miracle. And so he needed to preserve them. That's why they were so important, which makes you wonder why he left them in the first place. What's the deal with the thievery? It seems like a total out there. That's a great question. The thing that that immediately makes me think of is there's this sort of understanding that if we eat food or do something that requires a bracha without saying a bracha, a blessing, then it's as if we've stolen because a bracha is sort of like the metaphysical compensation we give for what we take from 
God slash the universe slash the Russian doll that we're all inside. So part of me thinks that like that whole bit I said to you about how a tzaddik sees everything as given straight from God, mm-hmm. right? It's like because a tzaddik gives every object its due because it, to them it is a gift directly from God, not giving that gratitude is equivalent to thievery because they are sort of performing the metaphysical exchange. That's one way. The other way is just like they are so careful to basically do no harm and do good that they are always poor. And so that's why their possessions are so dear to them because they're so scrupulous in their ethics. Okay, okay. So now second question is take me back to my original question, which is right. what do you do with someone who never was a stone tablet that then got broken? What do you do with the bad people? The baddie baddies? Do they get put in the Ark of the Covenant? Well, your question was just about neutral people, which I think oh, is its okay, own okay. area. Neutral people. Uh, but we can talk about it all. I mean... I don't have the answer, but the, but the reason I I felt like this text was part of an answer is because one of the ways this text is responding to your question is like, there is no one and nothing that is not a tablet, fundamentally, right? The tablets came straight from God, and to a tzaddik who has a, a sort of enlightened worldview, everything comes directly from God. And so, all the more so, every person, right? Uh-huh. And so there is no person who is undeserving of this treatment with regards to a tzaddik. So the broken tablets get put into the ark, the little tiny jars get put into the ark, everything gets shoved everything into the ark. Everything goes in the ark because the ark is an infinite Russian doll. Wow. Okay, so that's that's Skeeter. He's look at him for a second. Just enjoy Skeeter. Just enjoy the Skeeter. Hi Skeeter, you little tablet. What a cutie pie. He's a tiny little broken tablet. Look at him. I know. <laughs> That's one way to think about it is that everyone's a tablet. It doesn't matter if you can't perceive or understand their wisdom in the moment. They're still sort of worthy of that treatment. Yeah. And like like you said, to, with regards to something that was just a rock, the other way to think about it, and this sort of harkens back to our discussion of time travel at the beginning, is like even a rock, even just a tiny little jar is the potential vector of all kinds of events that we can never know about. You know, every possession has infinite possibility that we can't know in the moment. And so they all get the same treatment of respect. Oh, wow. Wow. We're all going to get shoved into an arc together. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know how to wrap this all up with regards to Russian doll. I mean, I don't think Nadia's character is supposed to be a tzaddik. I think she's supposed to be basically just a regular person. But I felt like this really provided a window into part of the reason that those positions are so powerful is because they are, you know, tiny vessels of everything that was her family that she wants to put in her arc and bring to the future. And she's really like imitating, you know, Yaakov, our patriarch, by doing this, going back into the territory and picking it up. I don't know if Natasha Leone knew about this story or not, but it feels like a feels so, so similar. Yeah, that's really cool. I feel like this episode also, it's in some ways rehashing the same themes that we've talked about before, really driving home the points that it has laid out before of like the limits of what you're able to do as a human being and mm-hmm. what you can change and what you can't change and what you should be focusing on and 
what you shouldn't be focusing on. Yeah. I mean, I think there are certain lessons like the inherent dignity of all beings and our limitations that sort of are infinitely have to be retaught to us unless we're a tzaddik, you know? Yeah. It's like I've learned about setting the importance of boundaries so many goddamn times. <laughs> You know, and this episode sort of feels like in that same vibe. It's like, hey, in case you forgot, we're fundamentally limited. Our trauma stays with us forever. We're all Russian dolls of our ancestors. Okay, see you next episode. Like, that's what this episode was. Oh, yeah. This yeah. is just your friendly reminder that intergenerational trauma is the broken tablets of your ancestors' dreams. Thanks. Oh, God. <laughs> You know what else was uh, interesting about this episode and some of the other episodes, especially the last scene of this episode? Remember in the first season, you talked about how the first season is really almost like a morality play or something like that. Mm -hmm, yeah. And this is maybe some of that, but it's almost trying to be an immersive psychedelic. This is what it's like to be a traumatized Ooh. human. You have no idea. It's about to take off. I mean, you re it really gets into it in the end of this episode when she's going through the train and it's the train loop, you know, it's like the psychedelic factor of the show is escalating on a steady curve. Well, dear listeners, we are happy to be carrying you with us into the future, into this so-called new year, and we're happy to be carried by you, thank God, in the arcs that are your various smartphones and other devices. Thanks so much for continuing to hang out with us. If you're able to, we'd love your support on the Patreon at patreon.com slash hi, how are you? And if not, just uh, just listening or telling your friends about the show is so wonderful. We, oh, Ace is barking at a dog that's outside the apartment. We love each and every one of you. We wish you a happy Goyish New Year, and we'll talk to you soon. Shavuotov. Shavuotov.